I think men have been more harmed by feminism than women, actually. I think it's really tough to be a man right now. Uh, the roles are very unclear. One woman loves it. If you buy her dinner, the other is insulted. It's so confusing. <laughs> Welcome to the New Age Sage Podcast, where you come to free your mind from all the things that keep you in suffering. Today's guest is Mary Ruddick. She is a tribal expert we talk about her near-death experiences when she was living with indigenous tribes. You're going to love it. Please like and subscribe. Thank you. Welcome on the show. Thank you. Um, so what I'm fascinated about and what you do is that I, I currently perceive the world we live in, especially in American culture, having a lot of you know, societal diseases or mental diseases, whether it be you know, the food we eat or the things we consume or what we talk about, we focus on. What do you think it is mainly in, you know, tribes or indigenous cultures that even though they have less than us, even though they may have more like struggles, why do they seem so much more grateful, happy, and fulfilled and healthier? Oh, well, first of all, they live in a state of gratitude and satisfaction. They don't fluctuate. I think it has nothing to do with how much we have. I personally experienced that when I was sick. Mm. Um, you don't see the unhappiness in the indigenous cultures. Not until they start to incorporate some of our modern things, really. You know, each culture is very different that I go to visit. But when I ask them questions, I've actually stopped asking this question because I always get the same answer. But if I ask them questions like, are you interested in going into town? Are you interested in learning about our life? They're not even interested in learning about our life because they can't imagine a life better than theirs, mm. right? And they look around. This one chief just gave me a phenomenal answer once. He was like, look around, Mary, through a translator, of course. <laughs> uh, I have my family with me at all times. My boys go hunting with me. I come home to my wife. We cook, we dance, we sing. Our food is easy and abundant. We don't have to store food for next week, next month. It's always here. When people tell me I should go into town and build a house that I have to pay for and that I have to go and do a job to pay for that house and leave my family, it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense. So I think we've now complicated our lives to a point where we've lost the magic, right? There's a real magic to this world. And I'm pretty sure even with all I've seen, I've only seen a glimpse. Um, there's definitely a different sense, you know, like sound, sight, these senses. It seems like they have an additional sense and that, of course, we would have as well that we can tap into. Uh, but they seem to be in it at all times. And so you couple that with the fact of what I know <laughs> physi physiology wise, mm -hmm. right, in the human body, how we've really damaged our microbiome which makes a lot of our feel-good chemicals. Yeah. Uh, we're using lights, we're living on schedules, we're very stressed. I come home and I just cannot get over people's schedules. <laughs> I can't, they're phenomenal. Yeah. I, I was just talking to my sister who got a new job and she's always had great jobs, but she just transferred states. And she was so excited to have a job from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., Monday through Friday. And I just couldn't even cognitize that. I can't imagine the stress. She has two kids. Uh, you then have the commute. When do you have, when do you relax? Yeah. 
when are you present? Yeah. I think yeah. What you're discussing here is a distinction. I think here we're all human doings. We're just always in the in a, like a rat race of doing everything. Yeah. And not just being here right now, present and enjoying reality. Yeah. That we're actually human beings. I think what you're maybe pick up picking up on is this conception of in those cultures, they're just existing. They're just being with what it is. They're enjoying what they have and just not feeling this this constant need to be doing something. Yes. What do you notice in people? Like, why do you think we're so obsessed with with doing here rather than being? I think it's how we get our sense of worth. Mm. You know, I don't meet too many people that feel worthy. It doesn't matter how successful they are. They could be an NFL star and they still have this underlying feeling that they're not good enough or that they have to prove their worth. In the tribes, they tend to teach character development from a very young age. Um, So they're really learning the virtues of character from one on. I was just with with the Toltecs in Mexico. And with them, they give their two-year-old children these rattles. And that's all they give them for about 24 hours. No food, no water. And so if the child feels uncomfortable, they can shake the rattle. But they don't get comforted. Mm. They don't get anything. And at the end of the 24 hours, then they're immensely loved by everyone. Right? So they're kind of like taught uh, mental hardiness from the get-go. Each group does it very differently. Some start later, but but they always have this buildup of character and confidence. And you know, confidence really comes from. I, I think many people have different theories on it. For myself, confidence came from uh, becoming good at things, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Having trust in oneself. And I think in our culture, we often feel that we need degrees or other people to validate what we're good at. And so we're chasing things rather than really honing a craft. Yeah. And these cultures hone a craft, but they also have very set roles in society, not in a limiting way. It's actually very freeing to have clear boundaries. Yeah, sure. Right? So if you're a hunter, and a lot of the tribes and communities I go to visit, they're not hunters. But if you're a hunter... That's what you do. You're not wondering all the time, should I be doing something else? What's my purpose? They don't think about their purpose. They're just being present. For sure. How did you build your self-worth? What was that process like for you? Was it a big moment or how did that come for you? Yeah, I don't know if this is anything that would help anyone else because it was such a unique situation. (laughs) Yeah, I'm curious about your story. What what kind of got you here? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, my, um, hopefully it will help someone. I think you don't have to go through what I did to get there. Mm. I think you can get there through good things. Mm. Uh, And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say what I went through was bad because at the end it led to the most beautiful life. But for me, I spent you know, 12 years of my life, very disabled, and many of those years in bed. And at one point, I was on a breathing machine, and my kidneys were failing, and I had organ damage all over, really bad neuropathy. And if if anyone has experienced that, it's like being burned alive. You don't get a relief from the pain. So you have to, you either break, or you go in and you learn little tricks in your mind. But what really did it because that goes into a bit of a different topic. What really did it to give me self-worth, self-value, was I was thinking about the fact that, okay, I have, what, a month left on this world. And I was looking at old photos. And I was remembering back to when I was healthy and how I would look at those photos and think, oh, this could be better. 
or this isn't good enough, whatnot. And I just decided I didn't want to die not fully in love with myself and how silly it all was, yeah. you know? So I started practicing tons of self-love and I had to do it towards parts of my body that didn't have a lot of history, right? My legs were in incredible pain. So I started with my big toe and I was like, I'm just going to fall in love with my big toe. <laughs> I'm just going to fall in love with that. And at the time I had this gratitude journal practice, which I've kept up every day since mm -hmm. then. And I would write, you know, six, seven page gratitude journals towards my big toe. And I started to realize life without a big toe would be awful. You can't balance, mm -hmm. right? You can't do all these things. And so then that started to spread and I started to bring it to the rest of my body. And I just started to realize how absolutely magnificent our bodies are, how much they do for us that we don't even think about. And how often I had spent my life criticizing or yeah. judging. And so I just made a contract with myself to never do that again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when I hear you talk about it, which seems like a devastating, you know, a painful experience, you say it with a smile and deep gratitude. Yes. How'd you, how'd you get there? Oh, because it, it, genuinely, it genuinely was the best thing to ever happen to me. You know, you go through something so incredibly difficult for so many years, and it's difficult in all ways, right? With chronic illness, I didn't grow up sick. I got mm -hmm. sick from an infection that went to my brain. When you deal with a chronic illness, especially a misunderstood one, we didn't know what it was for many years, you don't get social supports like you do with cancer. People aren't bringing you casseroles. <laughs> Everyone drops away. You spend a lot of years in a white room by yourself, you know? And, and the gift of that is that you not only have a dark night of the soul, you have years of dark nights of the soul. And so it causes you to go in and to transform. Mm -hmm. When you come out of that, hopefully, so far, it's been well over a decade, so it hasn't happened yet. Hopefully it doesn't. You don't forget how amazing it is to walk across a room just with ease, to stand up with ease, yeah. to be able to talk to you, mm -hmm. to be able to make contact, eye contact, yeah. right? Pick up a phone or hold my own cup. These things don't get lost. And yeah. so you just live in a state of pretty constant gratitude. Mm -hmm. uh, and you don't have that dissatisfaction. So one thing I've noticed each time I come home to the States, but also anywhere with like big cities and, and very developed, even amongst the most successful people, they don't seem satisfied, you know? And I remember that feeling. Yeah. I remember that feeling and just the loss of that feeling alone made going through that illness worth it. Just that. So we could stop it there and say, just that is worth yeah. it. However, since then, you know, now for the last um, decade plus, I've been working with clients and helping them get into remission and it's exciting. I look forward to every single day. You know, when I work with someone, even if they're in the worst state, I know where they're going. Yeah. So it doesn't drag me down. Instead, I, I feel like so excited, almost like you've already watched a movie, let's say a horror movie or something, and you know who's going to get there at yeah. the end. And so you're not worried about them the whole time. Yeah, you kind of learned in that experience how to 
feel love for just existing and being in some way. Like in my experience, not obviously way less devastating, but when when my mom passed away like yeah. about a year ago, I I would I used to be drug addict, so I was addicted to just escaping my pain all the time. Yes. And exercise became my drug at that point. I was always in the gym. I was always playing basketball just to like escape what I felt. Um, and then, of course, I just destroyed my leg one day, oh, you know, no. playing and, and just was, de- then I, with that one broken foot or broken ankle, I would just still go to the gym and lift and like forget about it. And then, of course, I fell on the stairs and the other one broke. And then I was left just, just oh, I had to, I had to sit down. I couldn't move for like months. And that, even though it sounds devastating, it was the most beautiful experience of my life because even though it was such a painful time. The fact that I could just sit with the pain and find gratitude in it and just learn to feel love for existing and not being a function yeah. and just finding value that way, it's a powerful experience. It is. Yeah. It is. I think sometimes loss is the best thing we can have. I can't speak to losing a parent, and I can't imagine. I'm so sorry. Yeah, you okay. had that. That's something I personally don't know if I'll be strong enough for. But uh, but physical pain teaches you. It teaches you so much. And it also it teaches you your strength. Yeah. Yeah, the the Mayans I was just with, they do this uh, ceremony called a temezcal, which is a, a sauna that basically brings you near death. But it's a beautiful experience, and the, it's built like a womb. And the idea of it is that you go in to die to your old self and be reborn. Very, very sacred. Everything has symbolism. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. And I love it because... It reminds you of your strength when you come through it, right? You know you can get up and leave at any Mm -hmm. point, but you don't. And so when you come out, you're like, ah, yeah, I am strong. And whatever that was that I was thinking about that felt overwhelming, it's nothing. How common is that theme within cultures like that? Some initiation, like initiation towards like a physical initiation towards uh, accessing a higher conception of self. How common is that? Across the board. Why do you think that is? I think because if we don't challenge ourselves and if we don't have a community that teaches us character, uh, we're unhappy. We're very unhappy. And that damages society, right? We're seeing that now. We're seeing that here. But I think also it's an act of love, really. So the, the parents in the community, when they're watching the children go through these, and some of them are deadly. You know, like some of the ones in the Amazon, some of the challenges are deadly. Uh, It's like proving your worth for the tribe. I think a lot of times now what I'm seeing, and and again, I'm removed because I'm not in the States very much, but what, what I tend to see, especially what I was seeing in the Northwest before I left, was that there was a lot of feelings of I deserve rather than I have this thing I can bring and improve the society with or improve you with or mm-hmm. improve a child's life with. And so and so I think these are meant to avoid that, avoid the the worst aspects of humans because we are so myriad. And in general, I think our shadows are our shadows are are where we grow. And I think the tribes and the communities haven't forgotten that. And so they can provoke the shadow, but they don't provoke the shadow without a guide out. Yeah. Right. Whereas uh, I think in our societies, we have a lot of shadow hiding. Yeah. So think of like you either 
willfully go meet the shatterer comes to you in some way. Yes. Yeah, and that's the way they kind of do it. I think like in American culture, they're not even facing it when they have to. It's like this complete oblivion and ignorance towards their own shadow, even if it's acting up. They yes. can't even go there. I think there's a lot of escapism, and I think it's very understandable and human. Yeah. I don't know if I was living in that life, if I would be any different. It's, uh, it's overwhelming, mm -hmm. the amount of demands on people. And so I think, of course, they're wanting to escape. But if that's going on, then what I would recommend is completely switching the life structure, right? There's that book, The Marshmallow, the Marshmallow Test. Have you read that no, one? No. Ah, it's amazing. It, it was this study done back in the 60s that now has been replicated many times. And it, it showed that, well, I'll give you a little synopsis. Let's say we're two five-year-olds mm -hmm. and we go into this study and we're put in separate rooms and they put one marshmallow in front of each of us. And then without telling us what's happening, they say, hey, listen, you can eat this marshmallow, but if you wait until we get back, we'll give you two. So if we come back, you haven't eaten it, you get two marshmallows. Well, some of the kids ate it right away <laughs> and some didn't. And they started to get really curious as to what makes someone wait for mm -hmm. the rewards. Well, because of that, they replicated the study so many times. I, I would have to be, I would have to look it up to say the exact number, but it's dozens. And they tried lots of different methods. And the thing that ended up being the most successful was to get the child in a good state of mind first. So they'd have them dance or sing or meditate mm -hmm. uh, or have a hug. So if the child went into the study in a good state, they would wait for the second marshmallow. And if they went in just normal, they would typically succumb, eat the marshmallow. Uh, and I think that that really speaks for us. I think that's why there's been this big movement towards morning routines and cold therapy and saunas and things that prime your day, right? Whatever it is, so that you start the day with a sturdy mind and a bit more stoicism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're definitely missing that. We're living in an era of you know, comfort, complacency, and a complete resistance towards anything that requires mental or physical exertion. And yeah. it seems like, egoistically, it seems like that's the way to go, that, you know, it's the way to be happy and just to chill and do nothing. But, you know, if you look at some of the happiest tribes out there, it's it's what they, they do to remain happy. And going off that point, what are some of the main, you know, like philosophies or tenets of that you learn from those cultures that you try to live by the most? What are some of like, the highlights that you really try to integrate into your life? Oh, do you know, I think the one that everyone is missing is community. Hmm. They touch each other all the time. They're always making eye contact. Yeah. Even the most regal, most feared, uh, will come up and just hold your hand, right? And walk alongside you. They all sleep in one small bed, smaller than this couch, and it could be a family of 12, mm -hmm. right? So I would say, I, I mean, my, my real skill set is in relationships. That's why I'm able to broker uh, friendships with the indigenous and, and that kind of thing. But I, I feel like I went into it already doing a lot of it simply because that's how I got out of my illness, right? Waking up early, getting sunlight, being outside, exercising, uh, practicing gratitude, doing cold therapy, facing the saboteur, uh, and being present, mm -hmm. right? So I, I felt like it, I did a lot of the things, but I'm constantly learning more from each one that I go to. And 
And if there's something I think we could integrate more, it would be less decision and more real comfort. See, when we escape to comfort, we don't actually get comfort, right? So let's take someone who's trying to lose weight, something simple. It's not simple for them. I don't mean to <laughs> speak that. They're given the worst advice, so it's very hard for someone trying to lose weight. But actually, if I get someone like that, it's very easy, at least when I had my private practice. The problem with a lot of folks who are trying to lose weight is that they're constantly in this battle for comfort. And so they're, they'll kind of self-discipline, self-discipline, and then binge. And and what that does is it actually prevents the real comfort of just self-regulation of weight. Weight should self-regulate. You mm -hmm. shouldn't have to diet, right? If your microbiome is healthy, your environment is healthy, and I don't mean toxicity, I mean getting daylight and, and these sorts of things, you're naturally holding at the weight you probably were at high school without yeah. effort, right? But it's that constant push-pull for comfort that keeps someone from being comfortable. When... When you do things that are hard, you actually relax. You feel proud of yourself. You feel confident. And when you feel confident, you're comfortable in every situation. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of, um, I want to go into this now, because one of my fascinations is for me is my story. I always had kind of like a lingering depression in my mind. Like I always felt brain fog and tired. Something wasn't right. And nothing worked until I started following an animal-based diet like that. Yeah. was it really took me over the edge of feeling feeling good um and even then i looked a lot more uh healthier in some way but of course it goes against the mainstream narrative i'd be at home or with friends and they'd be like what do you eat i just eat you know meat covered in like honey and and stuff like that <laughs> and like you're gonna get sick and die of cholesterol yes. I, I don't think so but i hear you so <laughs> why why is that the case why can we actually get healthier with the with i don't know what diet you propose but for me it's mostly like um just meat you know raw dairy and, and fruit and that stuff why does that help us so much in terms of a health perspective but also a mental health perspective why does it help depress why does it help my depression so much oh, it's essential you yeah. need those amino acids and those saturated fats for your mental health most of what we've been taught about nutrition came from the food companies so it's really not correct in any way shape or form and it's certainly not ancestral so one thing i did when i was sick is i tried i don't know maybe 17 different protocols and I had fun with that. Uh, but <laughs> eventually I got to a point where I decided I wasn't going to do anything if it didn't have an ancestral basis. Mm -hmm. And most of the things that were taught have zero ancestral basis. Even things like, I was just having a discussion about oatmeal. Oatmeal was never a human food until yeah. 1910. Uh, and so one of the reasons why meat is so important, uh, imperative really, or seafood, or both, is that it has the correct amino acids to rebuild the cell. The human cell only requires two nutrients. It requires protein and fat. That's it. And if you're dealing with an illness and you need to rebuild something, you need protein and fat. That's what you need. And so taking all the other things out, you recover faster. The areas that I go to, and there's actually many, many regions of the world that are carnivore. Many. People talk about the Maasai, but there's so many. Uh, they're in perfect mental state. They just eat meat? Yeah, just, just meat and dairy. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, meat and dairy. So the vegetables are optional. Carbohydrates aren't a requirement for life. But we've really been taught we're supposed to eat the rainbow. Uh, we need a lot of carbohydrates. Our athletes are told to eat a lot of carbohydrates. 
And really what they are is a tool. They're a tool that can be used. And there's a time for them. You know, we see so so much hormonal imbalance. Everyone's wearing polyester right now. Like the workout clothes are all made out of polyester, and that drives up estrogen. Then a lot of the foods are estrogenic. That's going to drive down a man's testosterone. And for a man, his if his estrogen is high, that's going to affect his mental health. That's actually when men get aggressive or depressed. One yeah. of the two. It's not testosterone. It's but, crazy. When I, yeah. People this too. And I was like, I used to, when I used to wear like compression shorts, yeah. I felt my manhood just like, just die down. Yes. And they're just like, what the fuck are you talking about? You're crazy. I'm like, all right. Yes. <laughs> you just don't know, but it's okay. Yeah, I hear you. I agree. Yes. Our hormonal system is fascinating. Yeah. And it was only discovered a hundred years ago, but it works like no other system that we found. It really works in direct relation to our environment. So even in like us right now, making eye contact, you're causing me to boost oxytocin. Mm -hmm. You feel great, right? If you uh, carry my bags out of here, my estrogen is gonna balance. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of things that were kind of written into traditional society that make us feel good. And the thing about the hormonal system is that although it doesn't kill us if we're not making the right amount of hormones, it does kill our quality of life. And yeah. that's really where we are right now. I'm curious about this. What are some of the like the gender roles you see play out in the tribes? Oh, they're how, very traditional. How so? Yeah, they're traditional. But they're, uh, I think we like to think that traditionally women were suppressed or didn't have freedoms. It's quite the opposite from what I see, honestly. And the males have their set roles. The females have their set roles. And there's a beautiful thing when you don't have much decision. And that is that you relax, right? Your brain isn't going a million miles an hour. You know what to do. And for our hormonal system, it's very important. So in the tribes, the women are the caretakers of the children. Mm -hmm. They're very strong. Uh, They have incredible posture. So, you know, they're producing a lot of serotonin, right? You can't otherwise. And, uh, and they're very warm. They're kind of like the light of the home. They do a lot of things. They go and depending on what, what their diet is in that region, they might be going to wild harvest or they might be working on crops. Uh, but the men and the female, they have very, very different roles. And now with what we've studied with hormones, we can see why, right? Uh, let's take modern day. Let's say I went into law. If I went into law, a very masculine field, I'm gonna start producing a lot of male hormones. And that's gonna make me feel unhappy, stressed, it's gonna suppress my immune system. For a man, if he stays home to take care of the children, we think that's very enlightened. And maybe that would be fine for a short period of time, but he's gonna start overproducing his estrogen. There's certain things that we do actually have to do differently if we want a high quality of life. and, and we have different hormones that make us feel good. So for instance, if I cuddle a puppy or hold a baby, I'm like through the roof. My ovaries are exploding, right? <laughs> You're not going to get that same response. You might feel really good from it, yeah. but you get your kind of bliss hormone from vasopressin. Even in acts that males and females do together, let's say after intercourse, right? Uh, women, we get a ton of oxytocin from orgasm, ton. That's our anti-stress hormone. I just want to emphasize that's what makes us feel Mm -hmm. good. Men, you get some good feelings, but it's not the same. And then afterwards, we always want to cuddle. 
because when we cuddle, when we spoon, when the females spoon, it balances our estrogen and our hormones for men. If you spoon too long, it can start driving up your estrogen. Mm -hmm. So you can cuddle for a while, but I think that old joke about, hey, go make me a sandwich, there's a reason for that, Yeah. right? It's actually hormonal. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna ask a selfish question for myself. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are ways that, that what, what should men be doing to like keep a, like an optimally high testosterone level? Like what are mm -hmm. like Great activities question. or like things that what like jacks it down and what should they be doing every day to keep it, keep it up? Yes. So right now that's, that's a huge problem right now. No, it's a huge yeah. problem. Both males and females have low testosterone and testosterone gives us energy. Mm -hmm. But for men, it's disastrous. You really need to be lifting things. So I think some of the, we'll go over the common ones that everyone knows. Lift things, right? You really actually need a man cave or some time alone every day. <laughs> you actually do. You need to go out, chop wood, or have a man cave. That balances your testosterone. It boosts it a lot. Why? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. We just know that it does. Yeah. 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 There's very cool studies on this. Um, uh, for you all, it's really important. Like, let's go back to the 50s when roles were a bit more traditional. Mm -hmm. Let's say we're married and you're off, you're working, you come home. If you come home and I kind of ignore you or I'm just like, hey, <laughs> and walk off or, or I give you a honey-do list right away, that kills your testosterone, literally kills it. If you come home and I'm like, I am so glad you're home and I cheerlead you and I'm like, ah, oh, you're amazing. Thank you for providing for the family. I have missed you. I cannot wait to serve you this dinner. Your testosterone goes through the roof. Yeah. So when men have a cheerleader around them, that really boosts their testosterone a lot. Also winning fights and being the leader. <laughs> so if you can if you can have meritocracy with anything in your life, that's going to really boost your testosterone as well. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. Why fighting? I just like, I think men should learn how to, how to fight and do all that kind of stuff too. Yeah. yeah. In the tribes, they play fight. Yeah. It's never, uh, it's a, I, it could be, but I've never seen it be vindictive. Yeah. I think because they're producing so many feel good chemicals, they just don't even go there. Yeah. You know, yeah. in terms of the relationship stuff, that's so true. Like when I've seen, yeah. even in my life, in my past, when I've learned my lessons with, with women, or I see friends who are just really low into Sasha, I can feel it intuitively. Yes. They always have a woman who doesn't respect them. So they, yeah. they come home to it's like, the, you're right, it's like the biggest yeah. tank of that. Like, and I want to know why, but it doesn't even matter. It's just, it's, it's so, it's so true. <laughs> Yes. You know, that it's, we don't see that nowadays. I think it's going to another point. I think that, you know, in many ways, for sure, that, you know, women have been incorrectly treated or, or you know, inappropriately talked to in the past. And there's this correct anger towards it in some way. But right now what's happening in my eyes is there's an overcorrection in the sense that women are trying to be men to get yeah. back at it. And to me, it's just making everything worse in some way for both ends. And how do you see that affecting society now and what do you think the, the, the consequences of her hormonally where women are trying to be men? In some I way? think it's why everyone is unhappy and also why there's so much infertility. Mm. You know, I, the amount of infertile cases I see, especially when I had my practice, but also just through friends and friends of friends, it seems like every, most people have real difficulty getting pregnant. And one of the problems with the feminist movement there were some things that needed to happen, but, or that were probably good that happened, but now we're in this hot mess, right? It's a bit like when, <laughs> when a government is overthrown and there's no good replacement for it, yeah. everything goes to pot. That's where we are because women aren't men. 
We are different. Our hormones respond differently. We have different needs. And men have different needs. Like for us, in order to be fertile, it's very important for us to feel safe. If we're pumping out cortisol, uh, we're going to shut down phase two, phase three in the liver. We're going to get estrogen dominant and we're going to get endometriosis and PCOS. There's other causes of that, like blood sugar imbalance, right? A high carbohydrate diet. But that will do it too. Let's say someone has cereal for breakfast or Pop-Tarts. The blood sugar is going to be destabilized and the cholesterol, which makes all of our sex hormones, right? So cholesterol is very important. You're asking why uh, meat can make you feel better. It's our healing hormone of the body. It makes all our feel good. It's villainized. It's like the killer. Yeah. It's our healing hormone. Yeah. yeah it's uh, yeah. It's the first it's thing that anyone says, <laughs> like when I eat mostly meat, like your cholesterol, you know, heart attack. I was like, yes. I think you will first. Yes, we need cholesterol. Cholesterol is what goes and repairs cells, but it also makes all of our feel-good chemicals, and it's responsible for many life-saving functions of the body. So when our blood sugar is destabilized, it's actually a deadly situation for the body. We don't feel that because our cholesterol will go out and stabilize it. But when it's doing that constantly, it can't make our sex hormones in the right amounts. And so we get imbalanced and the men become more feminine. You see it, right? They're growing feminine bodies. They get the feminine fat now. Uh, They get the feminine voices and uh, the feminine feelings. Whereas for women, we get too many androgens. So when our blood sugar is spiking, our ovaries are fascinating. I mean, there's so many magical things about the body, but the ovaries, they have thousands of receptors for insulin on them. Why, right? You would think it's it's utterly unrelated, but it's not because insulin is a marker of stress. And so if the ovaries sense a lot of blood sugar imbalance in insulin, they're going to pump out androgens, male hormones, and the female's going to get facial acne Hmm. and PCOS and not be able to hold a child, essentially. So uh, these things that we think of as uh, intellectual, as this should be the way, is going against nature. And so uh, there's a way to merge it, right? There's a way to merge it. Like if a woman works in a care-based field or if she... Uh, if she's able to maintain a calm state and bring her femininity into her modern job. And if the man still does a lot of the providing, he opens doors, he carries bags, that stuff is not... It's very important. It's very important for our hormones. Um, so if the male is doing is making her feel safe and doing a lot of things for her, then she can maintain a job. I don't know about legals. <laughs> Maybe if it's like real estate law. But CEOs, we're not really meant for that, even yeah. if our mind is, right? So, so I think there would be a way to merge it into a new society where everyone is respected. But the reality is, is that in the past, everyone was respected. We like to think that they weren't. Yeah, I read a a book made the point that this is powerful enough in and of itself that when women are pregnant, that any like amount of stress, like added up, will affect the like the mental, the neurodevelopment and and health of the child. Yeah, just based on the stress of the the mother bearing, and that like symbolically has significance in the sense that you know that that makes the definition or the argument that women should be 
you know, protected, cared for, provided for, and given space just to relax and, and feel all, all the all the stuff I need to do to Yes. To give health, yeah. Yes, definitely. And so what I'm seeing now is more of like a fifty fifty culture. But it's not actually fifty fifty, right? Women have periods for a week of yeah. every month. So that causes them stress when they have to live in the normal life. Even if, I, I don't feel like anyone's talking about this, but it, it is actually important. Red tents sound amazing. I think everyone would love them. The, the well, <laughs> females and males would like them. But <laughs> really a woman who's healthy and relaxed, she shouldn't have a bad period. We, we like to think that cramps and moodiness is normal because it's become normal, but it's not. When I talk to these tribal women, they don't have any of that. They're just a little more tired. You know, they're shedding an organ. So the stress is what creates yes. all the cramps and stuff. Yes, yeah. and the stress of needing to be all things. Yeah. And what's, for men, to, why do, let me rephrase it. What's good stress for men? Why do men need some stress? And what's the line there? Yeah. At what men, point does it become like too much? Ah, well, men need a specific kind of stress, yeah. right? They don't need overwhelm. I think both sexes are overwhelmed. Yeah. I think men have been more harmed by feminism than women, mm -hmm. actually. I think it's really tough to be a man right now. Uh, the roles are very unclear. One woman loves it if you buy her dinner the other is insulted it's so confusing you know so yes it's very hard and you're still expected to go off to war and do these things but traditionally throughout the world what defined a good man was a person who was willing to do what he didn't want to do right and what defined a good woman was one that could stay calm and joyful in all on all situations very different roles, right? So it is important for men to do things that they don't want to do. But it's also important that they have a place in society that's clear. They get, they get, also, they get respect for doing this. Respect. Yeah. Respect is imperative for testosterone. I mean, you see, again, again, men that I know who are yes. like feel terrible, they, you know, look at any skyline, any building. It was men every day doing what they don't want to do. Any job that requires hard work or I have friends in finance who go and it's not that meaningful but they go and they just start feel terrible and then no one's thanking them. Like yes. no, no one's thanking the builders, no one's thanking the plumbers, no one's thanking any men these days. And that has, because you don't, you don't want to do it, what are you doing it for? It just, it just, it's bad. Yes. That, that's piece is missing. Like some gratitude for, not men too, but anyone who's doing something difficult. Yes, you know? absolutely. I think everyone's so busy that there's not time for reflection of, what everyone is putting in in the same way that i had not looked at the amazing parts of my body that were working while it was falling apart i think we're doing the same thing in society and so people aren't being appreciated yeah how yeah. do you see that appreciation play out in in tribes it's constant in what way in always in like verbal always. touch like yeah. it's, it's always a thing mm -hmm. like over the smallest thing someone gets water or fetches wood it's always like a like a complete completely gratitude. and the word love is used all the time between men and men. It's not sexual. Yeah. There's this constant appreciation, gratitude. You go into the Temescal, and I, I'm typically in there with maybe 10 men, and they're all chanting. And uh, how you start is you introduce yourself, what your name is, where you're from, and what your intention is. And their intentions could go on for 10 minutes about gratitude. Mm. 
And it goes on about each other, about the fire, about the stones, about the earth. It, it's nonstop. It's like they're in a constant, they could just rattle off appreciations without even thinking about it. What's your strategy? I want to talk about this now. What's your strategy in becoming friends with them or, or developing yeah. a relationship with them? What's your go-to strategy? And also, once you're done with that, what's the most difficulty you face? What's the most challenging, challenging situation you have to overcome to connect with them? Who had, yeah. who was like, gave you the hardest time? Oh, great yeah. question. No one's asked me that before. Okay. Uh, I, I will tell you, I am not a chess player at life. <laughs> I am a checkers player. <laughs> I, I kind of just follow things that I'm interested in and that I enjoy. And then roads tend to open up. So, uh, fortuitously. So I've been very, very lucky, but what I've often done is just put myself in the region and then I'll end up meeting someone who knows someone else. And I stay long enough to build friendships. I think it's really time. Mm -hmm. It's really time. And I learned a lot. You know, I've been doing this for so many years. I've learned not to use uh, like set translators or set tours. What I'll do instead is usually go to a region and meet someone from a neighboring tribe that's moved into the city grew up with the tribe that I want to go visit and they speak the tribal language fluently. So a lot of times if you want to go see, say the Hudsa, yep. you're going to have a Swahili translator. Well, the Hudsa don't really speak Swahili. So it's, you're very limited on what you can ask and what you can talk about. You really need to know their language. So I'll find someone who grew up with them, knows the language well enough to joke and then go in that way. Yeah. And go multiple times. And in terms of like who was the hardest to to like oh. who was like the the biggest challenge of of creating love with? It's actually a few. The pattern that I've noticed is that if a if a region or a culture or a tribe has been extremely disrespected, they're very hard to get into because they've learned not to trust, and that's smart of them. Mm -hmm. So especially say. The Inuit cultures throughout northern Canada, all the way through Greenland. Uh, a lot of the Amazon has been brutalized. You know, we had gold miners go in illegally. We had the rubber trade where they were enslaved. Um, they've been used a lot. And then with colonization, many of these places have been asked to kind of put on a show which is very insulting. Mm -hmm. So anytime there's a place like that, it can be much, much more difficult. They're not proud of their lineage as much. They're not as proud to share and they've been punished for sharing. So they'll have, in some places, they'll have like a script that they'll give you if they don't know you. And then if you stay long enough and you gain their trust, then they'll tell you the real story and who they really are, and then they'll be proud to show you. So it's often a matter of time. If you go somewhere where they're very respected, like the Maasai, uh, they're proud. They'll let you write in <laughs> because they're proud. But that's because in general, at least in Tanzania, Kenya is different and it is changing now, but in general, Tanzania has loved all the tourism that has come in with it. And so they've been respected, but it, it always shifts. Uh, you know, many people don't talk about Panama, but it's one of my favorite places. Panama has five tribes that are still on their traditional land, which is almost unheard of. And the Panamanian government has been horrific. I think it was around 1927, 1925. They, in one week, wiped out over 
over 20 tribes, like full massacre, right? Somehow five of them remained. One was due to the Panama Canal and the U.S. government, and there's something going on there. <laughs> so the, the Guna tribe on the San Blas Islands, they were kind of protected internationally. But those tribes are very, very real. They're still doing all of their things. They haven't really modernized. And so those are good places to go to. But it's shifting so radically. Mm -hmm. It's shifting so fast. Uh, a lot of do-gooders do -gooders go in and really ruin the culture. Mm -hmm. You know, tell them they're not practicing the correct religion. Uh, really shame them. Uh, tell them they have to put on clothing. They basically destroy it. And then others, a lot of nonprofits actually do the worst. Uh, by, by thinking that they're helping. So for instance, I went to a place deep in the Amazon. It took 10 days to get in there of grueling, life-threatening travel. And a nonprofit had come in and brought them cell phones mm. because it was COVID and they wanted them to be able to go to school. So very well-intentioned uh, actions can have devastating results on the end of these tribes. What did the cell phones do that was so bad? Well, it brings them to the modern life. Yeah. yeah. That's what it does. Yeah. They don't have Wi-Fi. You can't get data out there. <laughs> but uh, but they try. They put it, in satellites. What was the reaction? Did you see like the reactions to it? Like, How did they respond to the phones? Like, what were they doing with them? Was it like... What... In the Amazon, the kids were starting to kind of play with them. But in most regions, they're not even interested. Yeah. Look at it like, what the fuck is this? And kind of just toss it. Yeah. yeah. Like if I come in with a camera, the little kids will want to make faces in the camera because it's fun. <laughs> yeah. But it's not something they care about keeping. Even I noticed, like, I mean, looking at your, your shirt, whenever uh -huh. I've, I've taken uh, mushrooms in the past or psychedelic, yeah. I'll look at my phone and I'll be like, what the, what the fuck is this? I'll just kind of like <laughs> toss it and not have anything to do with it. But it's kind of just your natural state to be like this, this, have this taste towards these technological te technological devices yes yeah. how do you manage that now of of like not letting that kind of stuff affect your your reality i'm going to give you a break to digest all this amazing information and in this break please like comment and subscribe thank you Oh, I can't say I'm successful at that. <laughs> I'm really not. Um, I'm often in regions without Wi-Fi. Okay. And then when I'm in Wi-Fi zones, I'm usually catching up with clients or doing podcasts. So I don't have a lot of time for social media. I'm sitting on thousands of hours of footage that I would love to get out. But there's a reality of time. You yeah. know, you can't cut film when you don't have power. And that's where most of the places how I am. Do you, how is. do you feel intuitively in your system when yeah. you're away away from Wi-Fi, away from technology, in nature? How does it feel different to how you feel now? So good. And it's always been the case. Yeah, it was something that drew me there. As a child, I was always in the wilderness. I loved it. Hmm. My mom's a Southern Belle. She didn't really understand it, but she let me do it, which was really nice. And I always felt best when I was camping. Like hmm. you, I used a lot of exercise growing up. So I was a runner and an athlete and... Uh, and I loved getting those endorphins from exercise. In fact, a lot of people who don't produce feel-good chemicals on their own will go towards adventure sports and athleticism because that forces the production, right? So yeah. I think we're seeing more and more and more of that. But I loved being in nature and I used to do a lot of backpacking. Well, now it's neat because I, you know, I'm not a rigid person. I'm not a black and white person. So I could get judged for this, but give it. That's fine. I... I bring an aura ring out mm -hmm. when I go 
and my HRV goes through the roof whenever I'm in these places. And this is when I'm dealing with a lot of stress. So I'll give you an example of one night. There was one night I was in the Amazon last year, uh, 10 days in, no, four days in. <laughs> and at the time, there's a neighboring tribe that usually stays by themselves. They've actually been completely uncontacted because they shoot uh, anyone. They shoot tribes, they shoot anyone. They're the ones with the National Geographic photo trying to shoot the helicopter. Oh, they close narrows? Yes. Yeah. yeah, they're very dangerous. <laughs> and, and that's why they've maintained their whole culture. Well, they've been coming closer to the other tribes by the Amazon to get goods and things. And they had just killed some people there. And so the village had set up little alarm systems made out of like um, a string. They can make string from tree in a second. It's amazing. And then these sound devices, kind of like a musical instrument. So they could hear if someone was coming. Well, all of these huts, it's, bas it's basically an elevated plank that you sleep on. It's just to keep the jaguars out. It's not fully successful, as you'll hear, but, <laughs> but that's the purpose of it. Uh, so I was sleeping on this plank. And I knew this tribe had been attacking and all of the, all of the houses are about a 20, 30 minute walk away from each other. And so I knew everyone had gone to bed and I'm, I'm sitting in my bed and I have my bag over in the corner of the room, which has my knives and things like that. Wasn't thinking, it's the last time I did this. <laughs> so I'm in my bed, bed, and suddenly I hear this pounce and I look over and there's an ocelot on there and he's rummaging through everything. An ocelot is a large cat, like a jaguar for those who aren't familiar. And, <laughs> and they're dangerous. They're not as dangerous as say a lion, but they, they do harm and they're known to be vindictive with their harm. They'll like go for bad parts of the body. Anyway, so he's in my room and then I hear right outside humans walking by and I know that only humans could be that tribe that's been killing people. So I've got that going on. Mm. And, <laughs> and my knife I can't get to, so I have no protection. And I realize after about 20 minutes, I'm like, you know what, if it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. So I just go to sleep. I go to sleep with the ocelot, with the tribe. I wake up in the morning. Ocelot is pouncing off, thankfully. I'm alive, I'm awake. I look at my HRV, it's fabulous. My deep sleep, fabulous. <laughs> you know, so even in very dangerous situations why, where- Why do you think? That's just absolutely insane. <laughs> I, I agree, it really is. But I see it over and over and over again. Um, even when I was- no, no EMFs and all that kind of shit. Like what's making it so high even amidst all the stress? I think it's our natural way to live. Right? The community is so warm. So that, that evening before I went to bed, there was this little girl who, oh, I really wanted to steal, <laughs> but I would not be able to give her as good of a life uh, as she has now, who just sat in my lap for four hours, no exaggeration, facing me with eye contact, giggling for four hours. That's all she wanted to do, mm -hmm. just giggle and make eye contact. I've never felt so much joy in my entire life. We made a fire, we cooked food, uh, an animal called a tapir, if you're familiar with it. It's something they really love. They'll go for a three-day hunt to get. And we cooked that in the banana leaves. It was like really lovely. And then I had already been in the Amazon for many days. And although it's grueling, it's not so much emotionally stressful, right? It's grueling, but not emotionally stressful. Uh, so I think, I think it's the fact that you're getting all the daylight, you're 
going to sleep early. You go to sleep when the sun sets. You wake mm-hmm. up at the sunrise. You aren't doing emails, <laughs> you know, which just kill your dopamine. You can't actually use your phone at all. And and so in that way, maybe. But I, I'm not sure. I, it keeps surprising me. I was in Greenland earlier this year, too, during the 24-hour sun. And so we weren't sleeping much at all, three, three hours, maybe a night, but also really good. So uh, it's not that you don't come back from these trips ready to rest, especially if, if I bring a film crew, then I'm tired after mm-hmm. those. But when I go on my own, I, I think it's just that our microbiome, our feel-good chemicals, our light, I mean, light shifts the microbiome more than... Well, about 50% as much as diet, right? Uh, and then the community aspect. So I, I think it really comes down to four things. And I could get humbled by this because I learn more every year. <laughs> so take this with a grain of salt. But <clears throat> mindset. The tribes have a great mindset. I got a really good mindset from my illness. Theirs is better, but it's really good. So mindset, lifestyle, mm-hmm. community, and diet. You put those four things in, and I think you're pretty solid. What is it in their mindset that you think is so special? Oh, they're they're like what the Greeks wanted to be with stoicism. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but they just have it without effort. They have so much confidence in themselves, and they don't have striving. They're passionate, but they don't have striving. There's no sense of lack. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's hard to translate. I think what, what I hear is that yeah. the main illness I see now in modern day and age is that we're attaching our self-worth to externalities. I think it's the biggest yes. recipe for disaster, whether it be how many followers you have, how many likes you get, how much money you have, what your job says, that we're constantly outsourcing our validation, our self-worth. Yes. And the moments where I've felt the most at peace is when I don't care, give a fuck about that. When I'm just, yeah. I know that what's inside me is enough. And it doesn't come all the time. When it comes yes. and I'm in touch with that spirit, I feel like everything's complete. Yes. And that's what I feel like is, is so dominant in those tribes, that they their self-worth is so internal and they get it from there there's no outsourcing of it Mm-mm. and i think that's the yeah what they're doing there's no outsourcing and there's no competition yeah so if you bring a gift the first thing like let's say you're the chief so mm-hmm. i'll bring you say salt or a knife something useful immediately it gets passed on to the next person to the next person everything is shared so there's not this idea of like yours and mine uh not until they've become modernized. Mm-hmm. There's none of that. And so there's no self-worth in the in the outside. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wanna, have you had any other situations of near death or awe in those tribes or in, in the wilderness like that? What Constantly. Are some, what are some, some highlights? What was the closest to death you've been? And how did it feel like? Uh, probably that night in the Amazon. But that night, I didn't tell you all of it. I... <laughs> there's more? Yes. <laughs> And there's more on the way walking to my my plank, my my deck to sleep on. Uh, a bush eater snake went right in front of me, followed by a flirt lance. So just you know, just the most deadly snakes, no big deal. <laughs> and <laughs> and then there were bullet ants everywhere. Which, if you've studied the Colombian tribes and some of the tribes in the Amazon and up north, they the bullet ants are these huge ants that have the most painful poison. It can kill you just from the pain. From one ant. Yeah. And they're everywhere. They're ever. They were all over my plank. Like there's nowhere that you can go to avoid them. They're everywhere. And most of these communities, they walk barefoot. 
So it's like they part the seas. That's why I'm saying I think they have another sense and, and that we do too, that we haven't tapped into. But, uh, but that night was probably one of the most dangerous. Now, further upriver, there was human danger, uh, very serious human danger with the cocaine trade, which was very unexpected and uh, got out of some situations. But I've, you know, I've been held hostage. Um, no, no big I've deal. been chased by a lion <laughs> and a rhino. Held hostage? What was that like? What happened? Uh, it was really a misunderstanding. I actually ended up hiring them and using them for two more it's crazy trips. Crazy how you see all this with a smile on your face. Yeah, like, no, it's, no, like it's nothing. I love it. <laughs> it's the full experience of life. I, I hear you. You know, <laughs> it's the full experience of life. I find a lot of things really come down to communication, and uh, a lot of times, if you can figure out what something wants, what someone wants, and also what their skill set is, uh, you can find a place for them in your life. So with these guys. What they really wanted was money. And I personally never care if someone wants my belongings or my money. I travel very light. Yeah. So just please don't take my passport. Yeah. <laughs> Makes things very difficult. So in those regions, uh, it's, not too, it's not as scary. There are certain regions where I've been where you don't want to be held hostage because they just kill. Um, you know, we were held at gunpoint in Kenya and that was, <laughs> there's, there's definitely those. And and there's certain regions like, okay, take Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. Zimbabwe in general is, is quite safe. Uh, so if you get carjacked, which is common, they just want your car. So you just give them your car and your body is safe. Uh, in places in South Africa, that's not the case. But it's very regional, just like it is in the States. So if you know the place, you know where to go and where not to go. Um, and you need to not be naive about that. I was naive once. <laughs> that Oh, that was a deadly situation. What happened there? Very. Oh, so, so bad. I took uh, some girlfriends on a road trip mm. through South Africa before I knew South Africa well. It was right after I had bought my house there. And you're not supposed to drive at night in general in most places mm -hmm. uh, for multiple reasons. There's uh, Sometimes the roads give out. There's lots of animals that cross. If you go through certain towns during the day are fine, but at night you'll get killed and very quickly. And uh, <laughs> we were leaving late from our destination and I asked some locals, is it okay to drive the seven hour drive through the night? And they said, yes. So we were like, well, if the locals say yes, it should be fine, right? And you have to remember there's no hotels, there's no restaurants to stop at, there's nothing, right? Well, we start driving and the road quickly turns into dirt and then just one lane and so you have head-on traffic coming at 60 miles an hour with a dirt lane and nowhere to pull off to so it's just like grueling right you're white knuckled we get closer to the elephant park that we're trying to get to and as we do you start to get through more of the townships and we drive through one it turns out the entire city is having a massive riot uh, to the level that they actually changed the name of the city that night fully like officially but the people in front of us all got killed and i pull in i pull in what do you mean they got killed like they just murdered yeah like shot or... yeah their cars got what happens is that they'll put things will be put in the streets that will damage your tires which will force you to stop and then you get pulled out of the car and you get killed and then they take your car and your belongings and that was all in front of us and then suddenly a riot vehicle shows up and I just follow behind the riot vehicle like the parting of the seas. It was incredibly lucky, but um, 
Yeah, there were fires everywhere. I mean, that was that was one of like 50 things that happened on that drive. So don't drive in Africa at night. What do you think it is that that force you previously touched upon that you can go through these experiences over and over again. You can be next to a deadly animal. You can be next to thousands of deadly ants and you're fine. Yeah. Do you feel that in you? Like you're protected in some way? Like how does that yeah. go about? I feel like it could change at any moment. So I don't feel immune. Uh, I know when I'm going through that, that something can happen to me. But I have two things going for me. One, I have zero fear of death at all. I faced my death when I was young. Um I think the thing that's scary is being in pain long term. Yeah. So if it's short term, 24, 48 hours, bring it on. <laughs> like that's not scary to me. So uh, so there's not much fear. And then there's also a great feeling of safety in general. I find, and I even have dreams like this, where a situation will happen and then I tell myself to feel safe and then the whole storyline changes. So I think the real feeling of safety uh, can only help you in a situation. Does it mean that nothing will happen? No, but it does tend to bring about better better situations. And I, I don't know, I was never a very fear-based person to begin with, but uh, I don't know, they're, they're not demotivating. What do, you, what do you think for you eradicates fear? I think right now we're in the most yeah. fearful generation ever. We're all constantly scared shitless. You know, yeah. we're, we're constantly cycling through media... Uh, watching media cycles of fear and all that kind of shit for you what has helped you become fearless and how can people how can people start tapping into that how can we lose fear feel safe and, and trust that we're we're okay in some not we're okay but yeah. we're okay with not being okay in some way yes. you know yeah. i think what you said about earlier about things coming from within is true mm -hmm. uh if you look without you're going to be afraid if you look within you can find safety and anyone who's gone through very serious things, many people have gone through much worse than I, they tend to uh, feel safe regardless. And I, I think that's really the important thing. If you've been lucky enough to go through something as hard as you, you and I have, or uh, harder things like the Holocaust and these sorts of things, then you have something to compare it to. And so while you're still human, you might have... Uh, a stressful response for say an hour, you come back very quickly because you have that comparison of what actually is bad. Yeah. You know? So one thing that I did a long time ago, you know, they couldn't figure out how to make me better, the doctors. And so I started looking at things on my own and seeing what helped just general things, immune system, nervous system. And one of the things was to stop listening to most forms of music, just do classical, only watch funny movies, laugh, laughter. The studies on laughter are amazing. And to not watch the news. And at the time, I grew up in a, a pretty political family. Mm -hmm. Everyone is different. So it's a, a good discourse. It's not an argumentative family. But my parents tend to vote differently from each other. You know, I have family members in politics mm -hmm. back in the day. So people are very educated in politics. So news was on, that kind of thing. Uh, I was involved with Amnesty International from a young age, and my undergrad was in international conflict management. So I was very, like, in that world. But what I did when I was bedbound is I canceled all my subscriptions and I stopped watching the news. And that's very helpful. It's very helpful, I have to say. Uh, you don't put your head in the sand when there's a big event someone tells you. Yeah. You know, you hear about it. And certainly before going to a region, it is important to know what the situation is. 
you know, if there's an election going on or whatnot. But so often what we see on the news is just incredibly inaccurate. And I'll give you a real story because I know people say that line a lot, but I want to give some context to it. When I was in Zimbabwe during lockdown, uh, people started contacting me asking if I was okay. And this is a common occurrence. Everyone will be like, are you okay? And I'll be like, what do you mean? What's going on? They'll be like, there's riots in the streets where you are. And now I'll, I'll be like, well, um, actually, no, everyone's fine. I'm with all the locals. Nothing's going on. It's on like one block. It's not affecting anyone. Or the Peruvian riots when I was coming out of the Amazon were going on. Uh, and everyone was very concerned. So a lot of times it's a very small segment and the news really misrepresents. I'd say South Africa is a great example. I, I personally had no interest in going to South Africa. I went there by accident. I needed Wi-Fi. <laughs> so I jumped over there and it was completely different than how it had been portrayed. Yeah. So, yeah. How is it different? It's not a black and white uh, situation. There's, uh, I think, 147 different races there and cultures and uh, huge cities and people have wonderful social skills and tons of uh, like Cape Town is like a Dubai it's <laughs> you know it's so different than it's portrayed and it's also one of the most beautiful places in the world I've ever seen but the socials are phenomenal you know I'm I'm from the Midwest where you have dinner parties and uh, you ask your, you get to know your waitress, you get to know everyone. And that's not very common as I travel around the world. And in South Africa, Zimbabwe, Botswana, Namibia, it's even better. The socials are so good. And kids, little kids will stay with you at dinner parties until late mm -hmm. and really engage and talk with you, make eye contact, yeah. tell you about what they're reading. So uh, yeah, South Africa is very different, but there are places where you need to be careful. Yeah. yeah, I want to take the conversation a little different now, um, just from my curiosity. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about gut health. I think a lot of what you say, in our, our state of mind and our well-being is dependent on the health of our gut. What are some like pivotal pieces of it? Like, What do we need to be looking for? What's fucking us up in that way? And how can we even just start the journey of getting a healthier gut? And what are the effects of that overall? Yes, that's a huge topic. Yeah. Um, you know, our microbiome makes up about 90% of our body. We have a halo biome on our skin. And then on top of that, we have a virome, which I don't hear many people talk about, but that's the viral body. It's 37,000 times larger than our microbiome. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if we don't discover many other systems. But with the microbiome, it's very important that it's in balance. If it's in balance, we have a lot of sturdiness and hardiness against the environment. I really think a sign of health is resilience. So if we have to put ourselves in a bubble, that's a problem, right? So things that affect the microbiome that we didn't know were affecting the microbiome would be the obvious ones, C-sections, antibiotics, Clorox, um, cleaning ourselves too much. It's not normal to use soap, right? Uh, these kinds of things have really damaged the microbiome. And then in addition, a lot of the foods that we eat so we eat a lot of foods now that are out of context of ancestral ways. So if you take corn, for instance, corn is a traditional food, but where it's traditional, like where I just was, it goes through a five-step process. It, they go through nixtamalization, it releases the niacin, they stone grind it, they sprout it. If you eat it without all of that, the way that we do, corn on the cob, popcorn, 
it has a large protein that's a sticky, it's a lectin, it's a sticky protein that sticks to the gut lining and damages the villi. The villi are the little fingers in the gut lining that the good bacteria need to live on. So if you damage those, you get kind of a dystopian villi that only can house overgrowth and opportunistic bacteria. Here's why that's important. If you and I eat the same dish and I have a beautiful microbiome and you were born by C-section and had antibiotics and grew up on Pop-Tarts and eat a lot of corn in America, <laughs> we could eat the same meal and I will get healthier from it and you could get less healthy from it because we, we are not the ones who eat our food. It's our bacteria that eat our food. We eat their byproduct. So if I have good bacteria that's eating my food, let's say a starch, like a, uh, well, we'll just stick with corn. <laughs> we'll stick with corn. So if I, my good bacteria eats corn and as it does so, it releases an anti-inflammatory chemical for me. It might be a fatty acid like butyric acid that prevents cancer and all sorts of things. For you, if your overgrowth eats the corn and its byproduct, it releases an, a toxin, a fat-soluble toxin. Fat-soluble toxins are very difficult to get out of the body, very difficult. And they go out through the channels of the liver, phase two and phase three, that we need to process our hormones and all other fat-soluble toxins. A lot of the man-made chemicals are fat-soluble. So those channels are pretty bogged down already. And so a lot of what we do has to do with our lifestyle, right? If we get up in the morning, uh, we get sunlight in our eyes. We can't be wearing glasses or in the shade. That's gonna really help our microbiome. We have to get sun on our skin. We can't be wearing sunblock all the time or at all. And, <laughs> and then stress shifts the microbiome astronomically. Yeah. Short-term stress, fine. Long-term stress is the problem. So you have that as well. Uh, but then you have all the products on your skin. You know, we grew up in the Bath and Body Works era where everyone is using a lot of products on their skin. And as we're learning from the medical field, you know, a lot of medicines are now being administered through the skin for a reason. It goes straight to the blood supply. So what you put on your skin really needs to be edible, really needs to be edible. So one thing I always made my clients do was make all of their own products. <laughs> it's very important. And you see it in the tribes. If they do bathe, which most don't, uh, and they have no smell, by the way, they smell great. Their microbiome of the skin is perfect. They don't have BO. But if they do, they'll use things like yogurt. You know, they'll bathe themselves with yogurt. So lactic acid, which causes cell regrowth and collagen regrowth. So all of those things affect the microbiome. There's so many things. There's things that affect it well mm -hmm. as well. Like uh, our bacteria, we used to think that if we took an antibiotic, it would kill the bacteria. We're now seeing that rather than killing it, it changes its form. It changes it to an L-form bacteria. Now an L-form bacteria is where we're seeing a lot of correlation with chronic illness. So if we continue to get more L forms, we tend to get more and more sick. There's a few things, and we don't know why, but there's a few things that do shift the L form bacteria back to the normal state. Uh, one would be cold therapy, mm -hmm. uh, swimming in the ocean, not lakes, but the ocean. Uh, saunas do it as well. So there's certain things that were found in traditional societies that do shift it back. Yeah. What about yeah. food wise? What's like beyond yeah. corn, too? Like, what should we really not be eating? Oh, what, what fucks us up the worst? What? 
it depends on the state of your microbiome to be perfectly yeah. honest if you're if you're healthy if your if your microbiome is healthy i feel that most people don't know if they're healthy or not because they don't know what real health looks like what does a real healthy microbiome look like feel like you wake up with energy you feel connected to everyone you feel joyful at most if not all times uh, you don't get infections doesn't matter if you're in malaria areas. It doesn't matter what you swim in. You don't get infections. You fall asleep easily. You sleep like a rock, dark sleep, like black. Uh, you wake up rested. That's what good health looks like, right? And no aches and pains, no headaches, nothing. Uh, very few people have that anymore outside of the tribe. So if you have that, then any ancestral diet is going to be good for you. Uh, but the food processing has to be right. You know, so like the corn has to go through the five-step process. As soon as the microbiome is imbalanced, then you really don't want starches. You don't want sugars. You really just want meats, fats, seafoods, uh, low-toxin vegetables, which most people don't know what those are, but that's very important. What are they? That's like carrots, onions, um, mushrooms, those kinds of things. You don't want to eat salads, spinach, definitely not. And then you want to eat in season and locally. A lot of the foods, I, I guess I should say, I often get asked, you know, okay, I'm from India. Should I be eating an Indian diet or should I be eating the diet of where I am now in London? Or say, Kazakhstan. You should always eat where you are because your microbiome adapts to where you are. But also because if you're going to eat plants, the plants are in relation to where you are. So in India, there's a lot of sun. So when you eat a lot of plants, they're high deuterium. Deuterium is gonna weigh down the cell. Deuterium is nicknamed heavy water, right? If you remember from your elemental table in chemistry, it, it weighs down the cell. And the thing that clears that is sun on the skin. Well, if you're not outside all day, if you're wearing sunblock and you're, or you move to a place like Scotland where there's not a lot of sun and you're importing a lot of plants and eating those, you're setting yourself up for chronic illness, right? Uh, if you're in Greenland or the Arctic and you're not eating any plants, you're great. <laughs> you're great, right? And you can be great in a sunny place without plants. But if you're going to eat plants, you, you really have to educate yourself on plant toxins and deuterium. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. For me, like no matter what I eat, I know I'm kind of fucked because um, no matter what, I'm kind of in like a constant state of stress in some way that I've been, yeah. my past and stuff, It's I'm trying to work through it. But what's the effect of that? Like I notice that no matter what I do, what yeah. I eat, like my my microbiome still isn't great because of that like yeah. underlying stress. What's the why? Why is it so devastating? Why is that like underlying stress so catastrophic for the microbiome and our health overall? It shifts the microbiome, is what it is. Why? Yeah, um, most of our nervous system is within the gut lining. We have mm -hmm. over seventy percent of it. That's why when you work, if you work with someone with say MS or Parkinson's or a brain disorder like I had. You can usually get at it by shifting the 70% of the nervous system within the gut lining. But if you're stressed, that's going to change what's called the migratory motor complex, the speed in which the nervous system moves. And when that happens, that can allow bacteria to crawl into the wrong places. So even a good bacteria, if it's in the wrong place, can cause problems, especially over time. So that's why the chronic stress is such a problem. Mm. But aside from the cortisol blocking up phase two and phase three in the liver. 
what are ways you recommend to heal our nervous system? What are things we can do to yeah. move towards like a predominant parasympathetic state? Oh, so many. I would laugh every single day. And I mean, real <laughs> laughter. Like you got to laugh a lot. Cultivate gratitude. A lot of people, when they go for it, they can't even feel it right? They can feel, maybe they list three things they're grateful for. That does nothing. You have to really get to the state of gratitude, like where you're getting a tear. So you just keep writing. Uh, one thing I did when I was sick and bedbound, anytime I felt angry or self-pity, I would immediately start writing again. So some days I would write six, 10 times and many, many pages until I got to that place. But it's really important because as long as we feel victimized or upset, we're gonna be cranking cortisol. And although cortisol is great, we need cortisol. It's what wakes us up in the morning, right? We don't want it all day. Uh, so that's really important. I think the breathing techniques that are coming out now have always been around, you know, like when I was just with the Mayans, when you, I did a one month canoe trip with the Mayans and they all breathe together as you move the canoe across the ocean. And that causes that, that same breathing technique that they use to raise the HRV. Yeah. Uh, slowing down your breath is very, very important and practicing presence. And I think offloading your schedule, having priorities, it's difficult. You know, when you, I can only imagine, you probably get a lot of offers and a lot of really great things. When really good things are coming your way, it's very difficult to say no. But if you don't prioritize, then it's going to be stressful, even if they're all good things. Yeah. The other thing is, too, something I just learned, which I think is something I'd love to implement. I was with these shamans from the Toltecs, and, and you know, the Toltecs have been hiding in the mountains from the 1200s. I didn't think they existed anymore, <laughs> but they do. And they're very sweet people. And the shamans, they're not considered a shaman until they've practiced for 30 years. So one of my friends is an apprentice and he's been practicing for 16 years and he's still not a shaman, but he's taught me a lot. And what these shamans do is that they go to different regions of Mexico each year by themselves to harness energy so that then they can use that energy to heal others. I don't know anyone who works in the health space that takes that kind of time, right? They're mm -hmm. constantly giving, 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 not filling. And I think it's something that could be very helpful to bring into our society as a norm, not as like a, it has to come from the right intention. It couldn't come from a place of victimization or that kind of thing, but very much from a place of, I do this as a gift to others. Yeah. 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 I completely yeah. agree. That's what I tell people who are trying to be a coach or therapist, do all this kind of stuff. I'll say, they're so fixated on, on helping others. And that's fine. I get the heart, yeah. but it's like, fix yourself first. Like, really get to yeah. a place where you're embodied and you're really living those things because then it becomes so intuitive. It's like you really, you're doing the healing work because it's coming from your body. It's not coming from your intellect, things you memorize on a page, right? Yes. In the healing system, that's where we get it wrong. It's just robotic memorization repeated yeah. based on what, you know, these bullshit manuals say rather than coming from the heart and actually and healing energy. So yeah. I completely agree. What's How do you feel right now with the medical system? I think right now what we're dealing with is, is, is fucked up in a way of we're taught to match symptoms with medication. That's all we know, right? Yes. Like if you have a headache, it's a pill. If you have a certain, you know, going, something going on wrong in your system or a bone or a bacteria, it's always like medication. How do you feel about that? What are the consequences of that in our day and age? I think that there's so many consequences of it. 
I'm grateful we have the medical field, but I think we've put it on a pedestal that's caused more harm than good. Uh, really, our bodies have everything they need inside them to heal at all times. Uh, really, everything is under our nose at all times, and that's in nature too. I've given a lot of talks about that uh, at medical conferences, but <clears throat> I'm grateful that we have the medicine, that we can use it, but I think it's being abused. So if the medicine is used as a crutch, like let's say, well, I, I can give my own story. I was on a lot of medicines when I was sick. Same here. Yeah. yeah. And at the end, I tapered them down to five from 17. And those were the ones that were really helping 17. me. 17. I thought I, I, I usually have the most. I was, I was at 10 once. Um, you beat Ooh, me. Oh, so. I, I don't want to win that competition. <laughs> but the, the, the five that helped me, they helped me function so that I could stand for three minutes. It wasn't like it gave me my life back, yeah. right? But I could stand without having a seizure for three minutes so I could get some things done. And... What I decided was, was that I would use that as, okay, I'm going to take full responsibility. If I'm going to take these medicines, then I'm going to do everything in my power to get off of these medicines, right? And that was kind of my contract with myself. And I think if you use medicine in that way, it's perfectly healthy. If you use medicine as a, I have to take this for the rest of my life and I'm not fixing anything, it's utterly irresponsible, um, incredibly. And... I will say we have a very skewed view in the states of medicine. Um, we could talk for hours about this. Uh, it's been so insightful to live in all these other countries where it's so different. Uh, even away from the tribal lands, it's so different. But here I come home, I turn on the radio in my mom's car and there's blasting about fear, about infections. You go to uh, a restaurant and it's sponsored by a hospital. There's constantly flyers for illnesses. It's, it's like advertising for sickness all the time yeah. that this is normal. And it's absolutely abnormal. So I think the entire medical system is hugely problematic. I think it doesn't help patients. I think the doctors are unhappy too. They're not able to help people. And I think the medical schools spend a lot of time teaching nitty gritty things that don't actually get people better. And so you, you end up with people who are very well educated. They feel very intelligent, but they're not actually able to help. And how I would really love any system to be judged, medical or not, is on the outcomes. And our outcomes are very poor. If you were to draft mm -hmm. a new medical system, where would you start? Oh, no, I got that. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly where to start. In like a fantasy world, or mm. not fantasy, I don't want to say put language out there. Yeah. Eventually, hopefully. What would, it, like, what would it look like in detail to you? Yeah. How we can help people the most? Yeah. I think people need to be educated. Families need to be educated. My goal since I went into practice was for all of my knowledge to get into household, to every household, and to put myself out of business. I'm working on that hard. <laughs> the opposite approach to pharmaceuticals. Yeah, I'm working on that hard. It should not be an industry, yeah. right? Um, ideally, the moms would still be the doctors of the family. If you, if you have someone at home cooking the right foods, and if you have a stable structure, you eat at the same time, you wake at the same time, those things are actually very important. If your body knows when to produce the cortisol to wake you up, when to produce the stomach acid to eat, immediately your stress comes down in your body, right? We eat whenever we can. Uh, we don't eat with people. 
These things all affect our health. So I would bring back more structure. I would bring in a lot of education because people really don't know how incredibly possible and, and even easy sometimes it is to heal. Sometimes it's very hard, but it's like very possible. <laughs> and, uh, and I would give them the education to do so. A lot of times it's simply buying different groceries and living in a different way. That's really what it is. Very rarely do you need something like surgery. Yeah, so I would start with that. I would get rid of all these laws regulating who can give health advice. That hasn't helped anyone. Our health has only gone downhill. Um, when the 18 schools of medicine were shut down around the time of the MDDO launch, we lost a lot of knowledge. We lost a lot of knowledge. And I would bring back socials. You know, our immune system doesn't do well when we're antisocial. And one thing I never see in these tribal lands are introverts. No one's ever off by themselves or needing a day. Uh, it's very unhealthy for us, actually. So I would really bring back socials. If we tie this back into hormones, like for women, you know, really until very recently, it was normal for women to have a book club or a sewing circle. And when we women meet once a week together, that balances our progesterone. So there's all these things that are free and simple that give us the life that we want while we're trying to like biohack our way and take medicines and superfoods. Uh, the whole thing is upside down. So basically I would take everything and flip it mm -hmm. essentially. That's what I, I, would I completely agree. Yeah. <laughs> this is my, my uh, last question of the day. Yeah. I'm very curious what your answer is. Again, if I could pick up on your energy and everything you represent, it just, it just embodies. You're the first person I met that truly embodies gratitude. I just feel it like oozing out of you, which is a beautiful thing. What I struggle with, I think most people struggle with, is how do you create gratitude in all moments? Like, how do you take the little things that inconvenience you, like a delayed flight or, you know, flat tire or, you know, you ask someone out to say no, just like simple things in life that fuck us up. How can you get a sense of gratitude that permeates every single bit of reality, especially when it's not going your ego's way? How, how do you do that? I really think there's two things to it. One is to practice it. The brain retrains. It really retrains. So if you're practicing it on a daily basis, very concretely, you know, I did, I did that gratitude journal every single day. And I've continued to do that now for over 15 years. And I'll tell you when I knew that it switched. I was healed, I was in remission, and I was driving to a job and it was my first day on the job. And I was in a new city. I didn't have GPS, I didn't have a cell phone yet. And, <laughs> and uh, my tire started to go and the person next to me on the highway was like, you gotta pull over. And I was like, oh, I'm late for work, you know? I don't know what's on this exit. So I was like, oh, okay. So I pull up on the exit and the car just stops. It, it's not just the tire, the whole car breaks down. And I look up and it's a tire fixing store right next to me. And I just start laughing so hard, you know? It was like, this is amazing. <laughs> So if you, if you retrain your brain, you retrain your limbic system, when you go through times of stress, most of the time you'll have that response instead of the, oh, I'm going to be late, my job's going to fire me, da 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 It all worked out great. The store called my job. Uh, when I arrived like two hours late, they were like, hey, and I said, hey. And it was all great, you know, so I, I really think it's very important. And whenever I feel like I've let any part of that down, like I've 
put that to the side, not make it important, then those things creep up and they affect you again. So I really think it's in finding the awe, being quiet, like just thinking about how insane it is that we're in a room here together. Like, where did all of this come from? Mm -hmm. If you think about probably 80 people are behind each of these squares, right? And where it came from, all of the different hands that it passed through to get here. If you break things down into the real wonder that they are, you don't live on edge. Yeah, I think you're referring to some level of like a law of attraction that the more you are in this grateful, receiving, awe-induced state, the more things just end up working to match that internal sensation, yeah. right? That yeah. if you're in a constant stressed, worried, you know, fixating, controlling mindset, you're going to attract or be in situations that fulfill that. And your experience matches that reality. Yes. That things just kind of come your way that match your frequency of, of gratitude in some way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so that plus presence, always practice presence. It's a practice. Um, the more you do it, the better. And if you do notice yourself losing it, then step back and bring those things in. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think, I think life here in America is very high pressure. And the last thing I'd want is for anyone to feel judged for not feeling in awe about the squares. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it takes time and silence and presence to do that. And so that's got to be an important part of your schedule. Yeah, well, thank you so much for all that. My mind is still completely blown, so I just want to express my gratitude for, for you coming on here and sharing your, your wisdom and your stories. Thank you. And ah, thank you so much, and thank you for having me. This has course. been so lovely. I just adore your energy. Oh, like, it's much. really good. <laughs>